What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we got a special episode. We are diving deep into one of the greatest hardcore LPs of all time, Madball Set It Off. Got Matt Henderson, Freddie Madball, both interviewed on here. Got a bunch of testimonials from uh, Anthony Papalardo, Dan Sant, Richie Crutch, Scott Vogel. So thanks to everyone who participated. I hope you all like this. Let's get on with the show. One hundred and eighty-five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. We don't fake it; we just take it. Set it All right, here is Anthony Papalardo on "Set It Off." So, nineteen ninety-four, right? Depending on when you got into hardcore, what you're into at the time or whatever, it could mean a million things. Like hardcore could be you're into like heart attack started that year, right? You could be like that kind of person. You could be like a high top Chuck wearing MRR reader into screeching weasel. You could be into earth crisis, right? Like you could be into kind of like this new wave that was coming out of New Jersey it's kind of like a like there's no there's no through line in hardcore anymore it's it's all these like fragmented things and i think madball specifically prior to that record coming out everyone collectively looked at them as kind of a side project or maybe I don't want to say in a disrespectful way, like a novelty, right? And those seven inches they put out didn't really hint at where they're headed, right? So then all of a sudden, Madball is signed to Roadrunner, (laughs) which is insane, right? And they put out this record. And the only other, like, the only other thing at that time was maybe like sick of it all. Black Train Jack, like New York City hardcore was not what it was a few years prior. Everyone was looking a little more like ABC No Rio. Like I said, like things coming out of New Jersey, like New York City was not really this this uh, focal point that it was before. No one really knew what was going to happen. And then f- for me specifically, like, okay, Madball comes out, like, I don't really care, right? Like, I'm not really, it's not really on my radar. And uh, my friend um, who was filling in for Shift, my friend Ryan Murphy, who was playing drums for Shift, was on tour with Madball. So if you really think about that, like, Shift was on tour with Madball shortly after Set It Off came out. And he comes back from the tour, and he moved to Boston, and he goes, dude, that's the best record. And I was legitimately like, what are you talking about? Right. (laughs) The only thing I knew about set it off was, uh, there's this like big record that came out and it kind of sounds like obituary. That's what people said. Sound like obituary had death metal quote, you know, air quotes, death metal production. 
And he goes, yo, every night, this is like the best band. And then I just put on the record and from pretty much when it just comes in, I'm hooked, right? <laughs> and it was it was kind of a thing where I think there wasn't a record at the time that kind of level set hardcore again, where it was like, oh, there's a hardcore record, right? There's not like, there's not a record that's like a certain genre or whatever. It's kind of a throwback to just what hardcore is. It's like um, a band that is just, they're, they're just beholden to this idea of hardcore. That's it. Like, it's very simple. And so you hear it. And the production is like incredible. The band is so crunchy. The band is so tight. It's basically the last iteration of AF. And it's it's just kind of undeniable, right? But then I think the proof, the the proof of that band, like I, I really feel like I saw them at that time. I can't even count how many times I saw them, but the majority of the times I saw them was driving down to Connecticut. In Connecticut, they were pretty much the house band at the tune in. <laughs> and I don't know when you, when you saw them there, they were just it, it, the presentation of the band. Like I would say it this way, like Freddie muscular. He's got this sick fade. He's wearing jorts. Hoy has got his tongue out the whole time. And then you got wild card, Will Shepler just holding it down. And it was, it was, I don't know. I think I think at a time when people were a little resistant to hardcore being presented in a way that was very professional, they just said, "Yeah, no, like we're going to do it in the best way possible, and we're going to put on a show." And I, th- I think the way that they carried themselves, and also um, the other thing I want to say is that there was there was a stigma around them that they were like a tough guy band, right? But when you saw Madball, they weren't the the tough guy thing was implied. Like you look at them, you're like, yeah, these dudes are these are the hardest rocks in the room. But they actually weren't presenting them. They weren't trying to go out of their way to say we're this type of thing. They were just like, no, we're a hardcore band. We're singing about unity. We're singing about these like very basic things. And I think it. I think ultimately like what that record did and what it represented was hey let's um let's defragment things like I, I don't think this was their intention I don't want to get too heady but I just think they're like yeah we're a hardcore band and we're going to do this on the highest level and so I think ultimately what set it off's um legacy is is that Yes, there can be a big record that everyone's going to pay attention to, and then we're going to back it up with this with the presentation, and just you're going to come here and see what hardcore is, and I think that opened up a totally new lane because I think it it lowered like everything got a little pretentious by '94. Things were so pretentious, and and things were so. Um, kind of focused on like all these micro things. Madball just said, we're just a fucking hardcore band. That's what's up. And guess what? If you don't think we are, come see us. And I think they set a precedent of 
you can be a band that's aspirational to be very professional, very put together, very consistent. And that's not corny. And, you know, I think that lane wasn't open. And then I think it opened up a lane for maybe no warning or even terror. Right. And, and probably other bands that I'm not thinking about, but what it did was it, it gave everyone license to just like hardcore and whether or not, whether or not you liked that record when it came out, you, it was very hard to say you weren't a convert after you heard it, (laughs) you know, like it, it really over time, you're like, yeah, that's a great record. And if you listen back to it now, I think what they did was, they kind of advanced um, like in a way it's, it's a more, it's like the next evolution of age of coral. It's a story about New York. It's from New York. It could not, that record couldn't have come out anywhere else. So it's very like tied to that, but then it's very referential to other things. And I I just think they brought in, um, kind of like they added some things to the, they brought some things into the recipe and created, I don't want to say a new genre, but they opened up like the, the possibilities. So yeah, I, I think ultimately the legacy of that record is that it made everyone a believer. And I, I think, I mean, the, I like the production on it. I, I listen to it and I think it's just, it's the crunchiest, tightest, and a lot of credit to Wildcard on that one. Like, I think, I think that band opened up a new lane for a lot of bands and I don't think they get enough credit for that. You talk about them opening up another lane, but Sick of It All puts out Scratch the Surface this year. How is like the lane of Sick of, all, Sick of It All at this time different than the lane that Madball set it off would open up. Yeah, so I think I think Sick of It All. Okay, here's the difference. Sick of It All is an established band with an established sound, and I think what Sick of It All did was expand their sound, not in like a gnarly way. It wasn't like I, I just think Sick of It All got better. That's all, right? Madball just comes out. I think this is it. Like. The Madball 7 Inches versus Set It Off are two different things. Set It Off is a fully formed idea. It's a mission statement. It's like, okay, this is what hardcore is to us. It's super tight, super fucking crunchy. And the presentation, like, if you saw if you saw Madball at that time with any other band, they had the energy like I, I would I would tell people to go back to look at when they're like playing Dynamo, I think like 95 or whatever. It's like what they're playing to tens of thousands of people and they're trying to fill up that space. And I, I think they opened up this idea that hardcore could be bigger. And I, I just think they're building off what sick of it all did. So I, I think it's a little different because at that point, Sick of It All was like advancing their sound, and they had been a band for what, like 
They start in 86. So they're almost a band for 10 years, right? Madball just comes out fully formed. It's like, no, this is where we're starting. So I think, I think the big difference is I think Madball was a little more uh, referential to where they were from. And also, unlike Sick of It All, like, they, they kind of have the, they have like deeper roots as a band. And so the expectations were a little different. And I think they deliver on all those expectations. Cause you, I mean, not in the, not in that iteration, but like at one point Roger is playing for them. Stigma's in the band. Right. So they have that heritage and there's a lot that comes with that. And I don't think, uh, you know, it's almost like AF 2.0. Like, that's a huge legacy. That's a lot to fill in. I don't, I don't think anyone was unfulfilled. I don't think if you if you like AF, you're like, oh, no, that's a disappointment. Like, I, th- I think they, they had big shoes to fill, and they, I don't know, maybe they were stepping into a nine and a half, and they, they were like, no, nah, we're 12. <laughs> right, and it's in a time that AF has broken up. Mm-hmm. What's up, everybody? This is Richie from Wisdom and Chains, Post America Podcast, Z9, Mushmouth, Boxcutter, Crutch, Fast Break Records, Never Ran, Never Will Records. Anyway, just a quick thought about the massively influential, very important, highly regarded album by Madball, Set It Off. It's important to keep in mind that this was released in... I think 1994, so there was a change of the guard kind of vibe. There was a feeling. The sound definitely was changing. And there were some explorers, some pioneers, if you will, that were at the forefront of that change, that that whole vibe, not only sonically, but the look. Um, You know, no more Mohawks. You know, like uh, a different look, a different sound from the scene that we loved. And, and Madball being, you know, a band from my generation, so extremely important. So that first album, Set It Off, comes out, changes everybody's mind about what a hardcore band like can be and eventually what a hardcore band should be. The band and the album were so important at the time and they had people reevaluating what the whole scene was about and kids across the country that loved graffiti and loved hip hop and loved punk rock, loved hardcore. Now they didn't have to worry about getting their balls broken by the old heads who wanted to look down on certain cultural elements that were now part of hardcore. Thanks to a band, band like Madball. Now it's cool. It's cool to tag up that wall. It's cool to, to put your, your your city on the map. It's cool to talk about where you're from. And and it was like a, a change in the culture. And believe me, at the time, there was resistance to that style of music. And a lot of the uh, younger bands that would take the lead from Madball weren't necessarily being uh, accepted into the scene with open arms. So more or less, they made their own scene and their own path and their own road became the highway for what this thing is now. And uh, the naysayers at the time, the people who tried to shut that stuff out, 
they became irrelevant and mad ball's influence was just too strong and that album that lineup the people in that band you had guys like Vinny stigma the the guitar player on that album so he gives it legitimacy for anyone from the old school that has any questions okay well here's the godfather and he's on this album and the, the guy from from one voice and on drums and guitar we got those guys we got will shepler we got matt henderson like they're making this legitimate now there's no doubt this is a hardcore band you know what without those key members people might question and say nah nah this is some hip-hop rap heavy metal sh-. no it's not it's legitimate and it sounds great it has the production values that the metal bands used to exclusively get because they got their money they got the budgets when hardcore bands never really did so this kind of uh really put the style of hardcore that i love on the map and that's kind of like the uh the history to it but there's also the personal side which for me personally it was just relatable all of a sudden i could relate to this band better than i could to some other bands it didn't have the kind of uh exclusivity of the youth crew type bands at the time nose in the air type deal it didn't have that dirty kind of like i hate society uh and i'm a drug addict vibe or some other you know the more the more dirty hardcore bands at the time it was just a new thing with an army of younger bands behind them that really just took over the whole scene and really became a worldwide style of music that to this day you see brand new bands popping up and they sound like Madball and they put themselves in the category of Madball style hardcore. But more important than all of that is just the simple fact that it's an album with great songs from beginning to end. And anybody who's a music fan, no matter what kind of style music you listen to, there are very few albums that you put on from the beginning and you listen to until the end. And by that time, you are completely satisfied. Set It Off is that kind of album. That's why I love it. Uh, I'm Matt Henderson, and I played guitar in Madball on the Set It Off release. The release before Set It Off, can you just give me a little background on Dropping Many Suckers? Yeah, that when we did that EP, um, we were basically, Agnostic Front was uh, planning to disband. So that would have been late 92, um, and we knew we were going to go do a final European tour. And... Um, one thing that stuck out in our mind from really the first European tour we did in 90 was uh, so many people showing up at the shows with the Madball Ball of Destruction 7-inch and, and wanted to know if Freddie was there. Like, I, you know, um, people just seemed to really be into the whole Madball thing. And, and so when we knew we were going to go out for our last European tour, Roger really was the one that came up with the idea of, let's take Madball out. Let's, let's put out another Madball EP and, uh, you know, give people a little taste of that because they really seem to be receptive to it. So 
that was the reasoning for making that happen. And it was literally me, Roger, Willie, Vinny, and Freddie. Um, Roger played bass. Um, and, you know, the rest was the AF lineup at that point, just minus Craig. And, uh, yeah, I, I, it was fun, man. The whole purpose was to be just stripped down, kind of rough around the edges and, and quick and dirty. How does Hoya join the band? So Hoya joins the band. And, and, you know, if you look at that drop of many suckers photo on the cover, uh, you see Hoya in there. So, you know, Hoya was a friend of the, of the band, you know, I mean, he's a, a guy in the New York scene and his band demise actually at the time was, um, one of the opening bands for the last string of shows that AF did in the States, uh, you know, as part of our farewell. Right. Uh, so he was, he was a friend of ours. We knew him, uh, played bass and, after we came back from that European tour, the last one, and AF was actually disbanded, we all agreed to just do Mad Ball on the weekends and have some fun, and, and Hoya was our bass player. What's happening? This is Freddie from Mad Ball. How did it feel to practice with the Set It Off lineup the first time? Yeah. I mean, it was all, it was all like, you know, it, it, these guys were like family, so it didn't feel... I don't know. It, it, it was all very organic. You know, Matt, I I knew for years he was an AF. And so obviously met him that way. And then, you know, we, we became pretty close right away. And Will actually was Madball's uh, original drummer from Ball of Destruction, you know. So uh, I knew Will even longer. I also, you know, those guys are like my brothers. Um, and Vinny, of course, that's a given. Vinny's everybody's big brother, you know, all of us. Um, not, not, I don't, I don't, not just the scene, but <laughs> even more so us. Um, so that was my family. So it was all very natural, very organic. Um, Hoya was um, the newer one in the equation. But him and I were really were really tight at that point. Like we had become friends, and um, a few years before that, and you know we so we were tight in that regard. You know we were running around in the streets. Uh, we had mutual friends, and we were just our whole crew was always running around and 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 and, and uh, getting into all kinds of things. But we were all very tight. Very tight. So yeah, it was family, man. You know, even though I know who I, uh, you know, I knew Hoya the least as far as time goes, as far as years went, but it didn't feel like that. We all felt like family, and Hoya obviously brought uh, a different flavor to the table that was necessary for that record. You know, so yeah, it was cool, man. It was uh, it was a fun time. It was uh, it was interesting, you know. We were creating something. We didn't know what we were creating. We were just like uh, playing these different riffs, and I was trying out different vocal things. And uh, you know, who knew it was going to be set it off? <laughs> you know. Do you remember the first new song that Madball plays together as a band pro- post Drop Many Suckers? Like, what's the first song you write? 
Yeah, it was it was Hoya's song, and it was uh, "It's Time" was the song. So y'all, um, what was the difference between writing with Craig Ahead and then writing with Hoya? Um, the difference was I was kind of playing the role that Craig had played when he and I wrote together. Um, Craig kind of groomed me and set a standard in terms of like being analytical. Um, you know, you're, you're, you got a couple riffs, you got some parts, you know, how's everything working together with drums and bass and, you know, tempo and just, you know, okay, that, that sounds cool, but doesn't it seem a little, <laughs> Craig had great words too. Like, there's too much celery in that. Like you don't you don't hear this. Like it needs more. It needs more, <laughs> more bark, less celery. And, you know, <laughs> somehow it made sense, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so so Hoya brought these amazing riffs to the table, and and even you know like a song. He had like you know a, multiple riffs that were you know verse chorus type situations, um, and you know he was. You never know until you start working with somebody, but you know, thankfully he was open to letting me say, Okay, hey man, that's awesome, but you know, what if we try to do this? Or, you know, it was never my intention to totally reshape it, but I'm I'm just thinking in terms of the overall delivery of the song. And uh that's kind of where I helped come in. Um I mean I brought riffs to the table too for sure, but uh that was that was how Corey and I worked together. Why do you decide to do an LP instead of another EP? Uh, being offered to do it on Roadrunner Records. What so do you remember about this scenario? Like, were you approached by them? Yeah. Uh, you know, and keep in mind, we're all, you know, we, 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 we all have a lot of history, right? This is, you know, New York City, years and years of being in the hardcore scene and, and being friends with a lot of people that are part of that scene, whether in bands or with labels or running clubs or whatever the case is, right? Um, Howie Abrams was the A&R at Relativity when I first joined Agnostic Front. And then after, you know, he, he had left Relativity uh, sometime shortly after One Voice came out, and I didn't know exactly what he was up to, but um, we crossed paths again when uh, Madball was... Uh, just doing those weekend shows in that, you know, early 93 time period. Um, and we actually bumped into him like on the street, just kind of randomly as he was heading into the Roadrunner office, which was right in the, um, you know, kind of in that Soho area next to Vinny's neighborhood in Little Italy, where we spent a lot of time in those days. And uh, yeah, you know, you guys are doing mad ball, really? Man, and he got a sign, <laughs> you know, he, which was a big deal. I mean, that that label was very strong and established, right? I mean, and we knew Roma, or we knew we knew Obituary because AF had toured with them, so you know, we just we had a sense of who they were and what they were about, and definitely had a relationship with um, uh, sorry, Howie. So you know, uh, it was it, I um, I had a hard time with it because I was in Boston going to school. When AF quit, uh, broke up, I had to figure out what I was going to do just with my life. And I never made good money being in a hardcore band. And most people don't, right? 
So I was like, all right, I got to figure something else out. I've been putting a lot of time. I was 23 at that time. I've been playing a hardcore band since I was 12 years old, 13, you know? So I got 10 years of doing this under my belt. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it or didn't ever want to keep doing it to get the enjoyment out of it, but maybe not try to make a living out of it. So when I moved to Boston to finish school, it's like, yo, now we can get signed to Roadrunner. They want us to do a record and tour. But I love the music that that uh, we were doing, and I just said, "Yeah, I guess it's meant to be. I got to do it." What was a Madball show like in New York and the surrounding areas, like in '93? So, like post second seven inch pre LP. Uh, really small and low attendance. <clears throat> it was, uh, you know, it's funny. Like a lot of people. Um, I look back on the 90s, and this is part of the reason Agnostic Front made the decision to kind of call it quits, is the scene wasn't really there to support the bands. Um, There were bands and there was a scene, but not kind of the more traditional hardcore bands. Like, you know, that you had that kind of post-hardcore era with, you know, Quicksand was was kind of a big thing. You had like Helmet. you know, Biohazard clearly was, you know, kicking everybody's ass at that time. Um, and but the more traditional hardcore of the mid to late 80s, I don't know, people just weren't exactly flocking to at that time. And uh, so, like, one of the fir- I think the first show Hoya played, we just talked about this not too long ago, was uh, a good friend of mine who attended NYU got a little bit of a budget to throw some type of little uh, show on the campus. And so it was us, and I think it was 25 to life at an NYU, in an NYU hall. And uh, I don't know, there's maybe 50 people there tops. And then the show after that was at the gas station, which was this just bullshit little hole in the wall in the Lower East Side. Um, I mean, it didn't even look like it had electricity, and there was maybe 25 people there, 30. That spot's famous because I think it was Gigi Allen's last show. That's that's the spot. Yep. Yeah. Uh, side note question, and I can edit this out if you do not want to answer. Um, do you consider Biohazard a hardcore band? <laughs> I do. I absolutely do. I know why you asked the question. Um at least I think I do know why you asked the question. Um, and uh, I don't know, you know, it's a very interesting question to ask. And I don't know if you listened to Toby's podcast, but he just recently had Evan on. And uh, they talk about how Toby kind of back at that time, you know, made some public comments, you know, saying that he didn't think Biohazard was hardcore. Um, and there was, you know, him and Evan talked about how they kind of had a little friction over that. Um, and they're well past that now. And, you know, when I first joined Agnostic Front, I met Evan and Biohazard, I mean, within the first couple months. And I already kind of knew who they were from being in the Northeast, right? I, I was finishing school in Boston, and they were just starting to kind of make a little bit of a name for themselves. So when I joined AF and moved to New York in 90, um, we actually went to go see them play at Lamore. 
in Brooklyn, uh, which was their, you know, that was their hometown, you know, uh, spot. And, uh, you know, it took me a minute to kind of wrap my head around it for a minute. It's like, so are they hardcore? Are they like metal dudes that are trying to be hardcore? Like, you know, as a package, it was a little not traditional hardcore, right? But if you knew the guys, which I got to know very closely, very quickly, around that time and just i mean they were hardcore dudes i mean there was there was no debate about it they just they just latched onto a formula that took their music and the band which i still think used proper hardcore fundamentals if you will and just expanded it so yeah they're a hardcore band at what point in the process of writing set it off do you decide to re-record you do all of side A of Drop Many Suckers and you do a couple songs off of Ball Destruction. Yeah. Um I mean I'm not gonna not gonna deny part of it was convenience, right? But we I thought it was justified because we're putting out a recording on a pretty large independent label. Drop of Many Suckers came out on Wreckage Records, right? Which, no disrespect to them, great people, um, great distribution, and, and, I mean, they did a great job with that release. Um, but it was a small independent label, right? It wasn't, it had, it didn't have anywhere near the distribution or the, I mean, shit, Roadrunner was putting us in magazines, like, you know, like metal magazines back in those days, you know? Um it was just a whole new level of distribution and exposure. We thought, well, a lot of people, hopefully, that aren't haven't heard the band before, you know, aren't going to be have any idea about uh, this record that came out in Wreckage Records. Let's give them a taste of all that, plus these new songs we wrote. So, yeah, that was why we decided to do it. Yeah, and looking back, you think that's the right decision, don't you? I do, and plus, it was, you know. This, the studio and, and level of production that we were aiming for there, you know, we thought let's let's get those songs into this bigger production, you know, situation. And that's that's another kind of justification and re-recording and re-releasing them. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you redo across your face, right? Because like you, that youth crew Tom part, it sounds so big, you yeah. know, and set it off. It's like it's yeah. one of those amazing things when like harder sounding bands like tap into kind of that the old school like hardcore song parts because it gets right. a whole it, it's like a whole new sound you know it just really works yeah thank you uh you know um i'd have to agree right i mean we I, I, we just wanted to make it as big and as you know uh in your face as as we could and um you know, again, we did we did um, drop a many suckers in, in Don Fury's studio, which you know, interesting enough. At that time, you know, like if you think of the older recordings uh, in the, from the '80s, he was analog, right? I mean, shit, Victim of Pain was straight to two track, I'm pretty sure. Um, and you know, all the more classic demos that came, you know, later in the '80s from his studio which was a small independent studio and, and those are always cool but there was analog tape when when madball did um drop money suckers he had adats and i don't know if you're familiar with what those are but that was a real early introduction to digital 
recording on tape. Um, they looked like VHS cassettes, right? Um, and it was it was very early in that technology, and I don't think that's a great sound. <laughs> yeah, I mean they were using DATs like all the way through the nineties. Yeah. Know? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um what do you remember about your practice space in this time frame? This place called the Music Building on Eighth Avenue, uh like between thirty eighth and thirty ninth. So Port Authority, Times Square, grimy as hell, man. I mean, just you know, no frills. Uh, that was, we inherited it from the AF uh, ownership. And um, actually, we didn't even own it. It was uh, it was rented out by these two brothers from an older punk rock hardcore band out of New York called The Outpatients. And uh, good guys, Scott Helland, uh, who's still around playing music. Um, so they just had that spot forever and, and we would just book out time and they always looked out for us. It was just a big, big open warehouse. You know, I, I'm pretty sure the music building is where Agnostic Front, or sorry, Metallica. Like if you look, if you watch any documentaries on them, when they spent time in New York in those kill em all days, they were in that music building long before I'm talking about now. But, um, so yeah, it was, uh. It was good. It was it was awesome. We could get real loud. There was good gear in there. It was our gear. We kept we stored it there. Um, and uh, you know you're just right in the mix of New York City grime, and loud music, and you know when you listen to that set of off record, you know why it sounds that way compared. You know when you consider the environment we were in. So it is all your stuff. Like you're leaving it there. You're not like written by the the hour right. or anything. You're by the month. Yeah, I mean, we, we we would we would pay to book the you know our 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 time. And I guess we must have been doing rent monthly rental. I can't remember, but our gear was stored there. That's that's for sure. Yeah, that's a hyper specific question. It's just it's nice to I don't know. It sets like kind of the environment, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know your shit. You know, you know, you get in, you plug in, you turn it up. Everything's the way you know you pretty much sounded the day before. Um, and it's your gear. It's the sound you want, hopefully. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it, it. I mean, we were we spent a lot of time. Like you know, we we took it very seriously. We were in there for you know eight hour blocks trying to write music and put together a full length LP. That's you know you you're familiar with that uh, type of task. That's a lot of work, man. Yeah, what are some of your general memories of like the songwriting process for that LP? General memories, it was a lot of Maddie and a lot of Hoya, you know, and and uh, musically speaking, it, it was, um, you know, and Willie would come up with his drums, you know, he would he would uh, come into play when it came to drum parts, of course, um. But it was very, very much like Maddie and Hoya with the riffs. Um, and then in that process, when they would come up with riffs, they would sort of go back and forth. And sometimes they would agree on something. And sometimes they would disagree on certain things. And then there'd be like, you know, we'd find like the happy medium uh, of something. 
Um, so there was a lot of that as well. But there was a lot of times where, like, you know, Hoya would come with a riff and Maddie would like it a lot because it was something different than what he was thinking about. So Maddie is always very open-minded in that way, um, which really helped the whole process. Um, and, and Hoya was very humble because, you know, he was coming into a situation that was, I guess you could say already established, not super established, but kind of established. And so he was a little, uh, apprehensive maybe sometimes about presenting things, but we were all like, no man, show us what you got. You know, like we want a different flavor. We want a new flavor. We want your input. And so, yeah, man, it, it, you know, set it off wouldn't be what it is without that collaboration, uh, from the riff riffing standpoint, you know, from, from, uh, from that standpoint. And then like with lyrics, uh, I kind of really didn't know what I was doing, but I was just like, jot things down as we went and you know flying by the seat of my pants kind of deal and i would bounce it off those guys and they would like they'd be into it you know or tell me oh maybe do this that you know they would give me their input but uh and hoya actually helped me lyrically on a few songs he actually wrote set it off um lyric lyrics and and the music so i got to give him credit for that um but uh, yeah, he was he was he was involved in some of the lyric stuff too, um, just because my cadence was kind of had like a kind of a street kind of hip hoppy kind of swag to it, just because that's kind of the music I was listening to, um, and had been listening to for years. So, and Hoya can relate to that because he was also into like similar music. So, uh, you know, when I was writing, I think he could relate to how I was writing. And then he also had an idea for certain things. So um, he became involved uh, lyrically on a few songs, not just set it off, but predominantly, primarily set it off. I mean, he came, that was the one song where he was like, I have a whole song, you know, and, and, and he literally did. I mean, he had like the lyrical idea, he had the whole kind of thing. And then Matt ironed out a few little things and then it was just like that was it you know any memories you have on writing or updating the songs start set it off like i said i was going to school in boston berkeley college of music when uh i quit af um so that's what i was doing um uh, at the time that madball got signed to roadrunner and when we started working on the records, I was technically living in Boston at that time and would come to New York for weekends. Um, and, uh, you know, we had this, this, the first thing we wrote uh, for the new record, you know, we had its time, right? And we had been playing that live in the weekends, but, you know, now we're trying to write, you know, more new songs for this record. And, uh, we had this attempt at trying to have like, again, that kind of ball of destruction vibe, that ticket, 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 you know, kind of that type of thing. And it just, it just sounded whack. We, none of us were into it, but like we knew why we were trying to do what it was. And I was just like, eh, just seemed kind of stale, kind of awkward, kind of uninspired. And then I get a call from Hoya. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I'm realizing I couldn't have. I'm, this wouldn't have even been cell phone, right? 
93. I didn't have a cell phone. So it must have been at the apartment I was living. He calls me up. He says, yo, I got a new riff, new song. And he plays that, set it off, you know, the the um, the first three parts, right? The dig it, dig it, and the verse, the dig it, dig it, dig it, And then when the gag, 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 I was like, yo, because I was still getting the no hoy a little bit. I didn't know exactly, you know, I liked Demise a lot, and I knew he wrote the majority of those riffs and it was it, you know they were cool man they were they were you know on the busier side which i'm not saying is a negative thing but it told me the guy had some creativity and a little bit of skill right and but i didn't know where we were going to go once he started bringing more music to the table uh and he even told me that it's time he kind of tried to write in a way that he thought fit what he thought we wanted to hear now he brought this thing to the table that was all him I'm like, bro, that I, I was just, I was blown away. I said, that has got to be one of the most amazing riffs I ever heard. I, still is. <laughs> still is. Because you're a musician, you can picture the drums in your head. I, I, I'm, I'm drums first all the time. I, I started out playing drums before guitar. And, um, you know, to me, it, it's all about the drums, right? Um, I, I'm a huge Mackie Jason fan. I have to assume most people are. If you're not, I kind of question your <laughs> your way of thinking. But, uh, you know, uh, I mean, drums is what drives the song, you know? I mean, let's be fair. Like, if you think just Mabal's catalog as a whole, the guitar isn't doing anything that special, if you will. I think we got some good, tasty riffs here and there. But, you know, if the drummer is not driving it, those riffs are going to be way less important, right? They just you need a drummer to kick ass, and thankfully Willie Willie kicked ass, so we had we had that covered. Um, and yeah, and set it off as one of those things too, where you know um, when you're writing a song and you need lyrics. Oh, you know what? They were Hoy's lyrics. He actually had lyrics. Forgot about that. He so wow. he. He was very excited about that song, clearly and rightfully so. So um, he was like, "Yeah, this guy, this guy is bringing bringing some magic." Do you remember how that felt, like the first time playing that song with the drums? Um, yeah, I was really excited, man. I mean, again, I, you know, that that time in my life, there was um. It was hard for me. I, 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 you know, been doing. I actually quit school to join Agnostic Front. Went out toward Europe for the first time. It was a crazy, crazy experience. I, I can talk for hours about that. I'm not gonna now, but um, and then just you know, just Agnostic Front was just you know, it was amazing. Uh, but I didn't make any fucking money, and I I struggled a lot financially to just kind of exist <laughs> that whole time I was living in New York and being in that band. And then when it broke up, it's like, all right, let's, you know, let's, you know, the, the true definition of, of insanity, right. Doing the same thing over and over, trying to get a different result. Like I, it's just not meant to me to make money off this. And so I got to get some type of something else established. Let's go do that. Oh, but now you get inside the road, running records. It's like, fuck. But the music, <laughs> was so badass 
that um, it's it was like when we so when we were writing that song, I'm like, I think if at all possible, I and mean, this this was my thought, you know, we knew Biohazard and what they were doing. Life Agony was, you know, on their way up doing stuff. Um, sick of it all, right? I mean, we're just killing it. I'm like, we 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 deserve to be right there. Not because I, I got some ego thing. I'm just saying, I think this music is that good, you know? Yeah, well, talking about drums driving it, let's talk about lockdown. What do you yeah. remember about writing that? And and who dictates like that first part? Yeah, so that lockdown was mine. Um, and that, that back to the get to the get. That was, you know, kind of my attempt at writing the Vinny Stigma, kind of chaotic, you know, AF style um, thing. Um, and just trying to get a little, you know, mad ball, ball of destruction, bah, bah, that, that type of thing, right? You know, um, so that was that. And then, um, but the, the first riff I had was that breakdown. Like I just had that on a cassette tape with a drum machine. I used to we Hoy and I uh we had a, we well it was mine. It was a boss uh Dr. Rhythm. Good little drum machine with those big pads on it. And so um we could sequence the hell out of that thing. And uh so I, I had that riff floating around. I'm like, you know, it's a good riff. And I just was able to build a song around it. I remember being in the music building, trying to figure out what the main verse riff was going to be. And I was messing around with different notes, trying to come up with that that hardcore pattern. I knew I wanted that vibe, but I just didn't have the notes down. And Freddie, right over my shoulder, just kind of listening and, and kind of nodding his head. He's like, yeah, that, no, there, that one, that one. You know, and, and it's like, okay, cool. We got that riff. And then... Uh, like I said, I knew I was working all the way to build up into that back and the and the and the and the and it's like, yo, it was. And and again, Freddie, this is what I was going to say about set it off, but I forgot that that was actually Hoya's lyrics. Freddie just took off with that song lyrically, like he, it was obvious he was so energized about it that uh, he just. He just started spitting out lyrics and just it took him probably 15 minutes. And it's probably a slight exaggeration, but, you know, he knew what he wanted to say. And he didn't really think too much about what he was saying back then. It was just all heart in those days, like absolutely all heart. And uh, that was lockdown. It's going to New York City. Yeah. Uh, spent a lot of time in Vinnie Stigma's apartment in those days, uh, a little one bedroom in Little Italy. Um, it was headquarters for us. Um, so like when I'd come in for the weekend, uh, I'd crash there, Hoya would crash there, Freddie would crash. I mean, like it was crazy. We, we were like in a little, um, like a barrack, you know? Uh, and we were, we were just working and living and breathing, trying to write these songs. We had that drum machine and Hoya. <laughs> I, I, this was just amazing to me. He came up with this technique with that drum machine where you know you, you could put a loop together and and he had all like sixteenth notes going like a deca 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 deca. 
and he figured out a way to delete within the pattern. So it's and I'm like, and that started the, you know, I got to think about it. Right? No, that's not shit. You could, oh, wow. That part, right? Yeah. That was from that drum pattern type thing. It's been a while since I listened to it. So. <laughs> that is so ill. But, uh, you know, so, um, and we just, you know, that one, that one, I kind of feel like Hoyer wants to credit it to me, that song. And I might have put the majority of the actual notes that made up those riffs, but him and I were like, you know, shoulder to shoulder working through that as a song. And again, Freddie, right? I mean, New York City, like, I mean, that's, we were living and breathing New York, New York as a city, New York hardcore as a scene. Um, I mean, we were consistently with friends from, you know, like if you watch that New York hardcore documentary that came back, came out in those, in the mid nineties, I mean, yeah, it was, it was the guys in Madball, AF, you know, uh, Isaac, Crown of Thorns, right? Mike Dijon, um, you know, MQ, Two Hip, Narc, Steve Huey. I mean, I'm just naming names that are very meaningful to me. But, I mean, we had a big, large crew of people that just were entrenched into the culture of that city and that hardcore scene. Uh, it was just really what we did, man. That song is insane, but the most insane part of it is the second verse, like Freddie's flow on the second verse is like next level. How do you, how do you feel like when you hear that you're like, Holy fuck, we really got like magic in a bottle here. I I mean, yeah, that's how I felt. I mean, I, I, you know, you got me thinking back and, and I remember, so when I first joined agnostic front and the first, tour within the u.s um that we did we did a short run just before we took the trip to europe and that was like the the fall of uh, 90 and we went down to florida and freddie was living in florida at the time you know he was a a 15 year old kid and he was living with his mother uh and his uncle um down in, in miami um and uh, so we went down there, and I met him for the first time. He's a fifteen-year-old kid, and nice kid, but a little, you know, I don't want to say awkward, but you know, he just he was kind of, you know, shy a little bit, you know, which is kind of interesting to think about. And then, you know, but he was excited to see everybody, and like so happy to have his big brother there, and you know, the band. He always, always loved agnostic front as a band the music songs um but he was really nervous to get up on stage because it had been a couple years since he had done it um and he's a little older now and he was into hip-hop and kind of r&b and you know as a 15 year old kid in miami right um and so now he's, it's time for him to come up on stage and do uh what is it last morning right um and you know, I was like, ah, he doesn't seem like he's all that into it. Or he, he kind of, you could tell he felt a little shy and embarrassed almost, but he, he did it. 
And then, uh, you know, a year passes. He winds up coming up and lives living with Roger. And I was living with Roger at the time. And then he's tour, coming on tours with us. And we did this obituary tour. Roger got sick, had to leave the tour, like, within the first week. Freddie had to sing the whole one voice touring set. And at that time, the kid was just breathing fire. And I was like, holy shit, this kid, this kid's badass. Um, so I knew what that was about when we were doing the Madball thing. And then, yeah, when we we're writing those songs, um, I just, it was obvious the kid's got a really good flow. He's a talented kid. Talented kid he puts really good lyrics together. You always believe he means what he says when he says it, and he does. And he's got a good rhythmical cadence. I mean, he's, he's badass. Lisquanda never had it. That's a Vinny Stigma song. That front to back, it's all his music, um, which is awesome. Awesome. Uh, you know, I stand by this. The the songs on Victim in Pain are a blueprint for what hardcore is. Doesn't mean you have to sound like those songs and play in what I'd call that more primitive and, you know, extra raw way. Uh, but the attitude that those songs delivered, I mean, that's that's the aim. That's the goal. And shit, why not? Some of those songs like Hiding Inside and, you know, um, uh, what's the other one? That, uh, I mean, you know, we know the hits, Victim in Pain, uh, Last Warning, you know, um, God, it, it's a With Time, right? One of my all-time favorites. I've probably written versions of With Time 10 times. Um, but uh, so, yeah, to have Vinny with us and still active and, and kind of just contributing to that spirit and thing that we're trying to do um that was him that one's kind of wild too because like lyrically you're kind of like e3 in the old school yes madball's kind of like the you guys are the ones like bringing the old school with you but with a modern sound i mean that was kind of the model right we 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 didn't we we felt obligated to hold on to that old school sound because that's what madball technically really was you know madball started out as being the even older riffs for, of agnostic front um you know i don't want to say the throwaway songs but the songs that just didn't kind of that, that af you know like the um united blood era type songs so we felt obligated to kind of have a portion of that still as we were you know moved forward but there was no reason why we couldn't and shouldn't add some new flavors to it too we talked this time a little bit, but let's talk it again. How do you feel about how that song came out? I always like that song. Hoya, funny, I think Hoya felt kind of, you know, not super excited about it. I think because it, it was, it was, you know, I don't want to say artificial, but it was a conscious effort to write a certain style that he liked. But I don't think it was what he would consider like his best work because it wasn't, you know, wasn't fully organic for him, um, which I'd agree with. Uh, I, I think it's a cool song. And again, you know, in those days, Freddie, Freddie just put so much attitude and, and 
and fucking hate <laughs> into those songs that uh you know it was it was good enough musically and Willie drove the hell out of it to just give Freddie a platform to just get up there and just say what he had to say. So, it, uh, you know, it's a, it's a solid jam in my opinion. Yeah. It's so good. I mean, there's no filler on the album. That's why we're doing this whole thing about it. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, CTYC RIP is, is colder than you colder than you crew. Correct. Yeah. 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 We were good friends with, uh, you know, that Detroit hardcore crew, uh, in those days. Um, Man, God bless them. I mean, those were, uh, those are, that's a, that's a tough crew, right? And when I say crew, talking about just, you know, New York, or sorry, a a hardcore scene in that Detroit city that um, they, they had a a strong brotherhood there. Um, And uh, they always showed us a lot of love and uh, we showed it back. And uh, our friend Ronnie, who, was a, I mean, a, a sweetheart of a guy. Uh, and I could tell you stories about him that, uh, you know, uh, proved what a sweetheart of a guy was, but he was also a tough dude, man. And you had to be living in Detroit. I mean, those are the days Detroit was, was known. It was the murder capital of the world, right? Uh, it was a tough spot. So anyway, uh, he, he was murdered and, uh, so that, that was the inspiration lyrically for that song. And, and Stigma wrote the, the uh, chorus that oh, just kind of had a bounce to it. And uh, it worked, man. We just, uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I remember the intro to it. So um, Hoyer wrote that riff and he wrote it in the same key that the uh verse is in right a if you will and i remember i was this was my craig satari moment right it's like yeah i like it what do you say if we move it up a whole step start it up there and this is also the berkeley college of music guy i mean i'm talking about transposing shit like that, right? uh but i did I, I felt like if we if we do a key change like it just kind of adds a little extra something to the song dynamically and it's the same riff but now we're just changing uh keys and etc but i moved it up higher in pitch and hoya hated me for that like it really irked him that, that i chose to play that riff in a higher pitch like it just it challenged him i think <laughs> did he come around to it uh you know um that's the thing him and i we we wrote a lot of music together. We didn't always agree on the final product, you know, directionally here or there every once in a while. And we, we just learned to, you know, accept it. You don't, you know, rarely was ever a hill either one of us felt we had to die on, you know? That's fair. Uh, okay, let's go on to Across Your Face. Yeah, um, I think Roger wrote the music for that. Um because that was the you know dropping many suckers era stuff, and uh, pretty sure that was his. A lot of that was his. I, actually, I think I had the bang, which was kind of a minor threat vibe. I felt like um, wasn't intentional exactly, but that was what I thought it sounded like anyway. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, I think there were even old lyrics that Roger had in a notebook that he kept. 
when he was doing time. And uh, that was part of the inspiration for a couple of those songs uh, on the Drop of Many Suckers era that Freddie used and kind of retooled. So that's what that was. Let's go on to Down by Law. Is this one where you're uh, you're channeling with time because it's a slower song? Technically, no. I mean, I, I guess I can see why you may kind of sense that in a way. Um, you know, for me, there was there was a few of the slow song models, right? There was With Time. There was Malfunction. There was... Um, uh, oh, Excuse God. The what, truth. Yeah, but I'm thinking different bands. And Chrome... Uh, like there's a negative approach song. I can't remember which one it would have been on Tied Down. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I I just always I always liked when when bands pull off those slow kind of doomy stompy things. Um, Evacuate. But, yes, good call. Thank you. Uh, but uh, that yeah. So I don't I don't know. I can't remember exactly what the inspiration was for that. But I remember playing the riff at a guitar center in Boston, trying out an amp. Like I'd just come up with the riff and I was kind of, you know, it was solid in my head at the moment. And I played it for my friend, Kevin Norton, who was out with me that day. And uh, I could tell he didn't really get it. Like um, when I played it for him, but it was just me on the guitar. Right. Uh, And without the drums, like I said, drums, you know, were necessary for those songs um so i I wasn't i wasn't tripping on the fact he didn't get it by me just sitting playing it with a net let's go on to spit on your grave yep um you know for me in all honesty i always thought that the the lyrics were a little hokey um and it, it reminds me, uh, you know, full disclosure, that Drop Many Suckers era, those songs, like I said, there was there was um, some lyrics that came from Roger's notebook. And some of them were, spe- you know, specifically trying to be like over the top, like, you know, either over the top angry or just over the top ridiculous almost. Right. And uh, so. You know, we didn't really, I didn't think, you know, we we weren't exactly taking it seriously all that much. Um, but, you know, again, it, Freddie, Freddie was an angry kid, man. Um, you know, he's, he's, he shared his family story, I think, a couple times. Um, I, I won't, you know, get into it. That's his story to tell. But uh, he had reasons for being a, a really kind of, angry and uh aggressive kid um so you know although the origin of the spit on your grave lyrics were kind of tongue-in-cheek he got his hands on him and i mean again you felt like he was literally talking to somebody and literally wanted to spit on their fucking grave (laughs) Yeah, and anyone that's listening that's frustrated about us not going into it, you can check out Roger's book, My Right. He goes into it in depth. It's not for us to speak on, though. That's right. He does. Thank you. Thank you for calling that out. You're right. Yep. 
But the breakdown in this, like in between the choruses, mm-hmm. is pretty sick. Who wrote it? Do you remember? Yeah, that was me. Um, <laughs> I I liked it too. Um, I mean, yeah, that to me that was nineties. You know, what I mean, like, kind of the way I put it, right? Um, uh, and I'd have to say, kind of, a, you know, uh, a, a nod to to Biohazard, Life of Agony, and that Brooklyn kind of thing. Um, I mean, they brought that element to hardcore that you know hadn't been brought in that way before they they came around. So I'll give them some credit. Face to face kind of follows like a real old school like punk formula. Of going yeah. like slow, fast, middle, back to slow. Oh, face to face. Yeah. 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 You want to talk about that song? Yeah. So face to face was written at the studio when we were recording Set It Off. Um, we didn't have enough time of recorded material for Roadrunner to really feel, you know, satisfied with in terms of uh, you know, re- releasing an album. And it was like, fuck, because, you know, I, I can't remember how many songs are on there, but it seemed like song wise we had enough. But time wise, and this was still kind of the early days where CDs were, you know, it wasn't exactly the newest thing, but new enough. And people were part of the CD, you know, value and selling point was you can fit more recorded music on it than you could on vinyl. Right. Um, so people you know, used to complain and feel ripped off if they spent whatever a CD cost back then, but there wasn't enough recorded material on it. Uh, you know, fair enough, whatever. Uh, so we had to write another song, and uh, it just kind of came together. Um, you know, it was kind of on the quick and dirty side because we had to make it kind of quick and chose to make it a little dirty. Um, but it was fun. I, I, liked, I liked the feel, you know. I, Speaking for myself, it's like, look, all right, we've got this type of song, we got that type of song, we got this type of song. We need to come with a different angle now. What, what mood and and you know, kind of flavor can we can we also throw into the mix to kind of keep a you know something going that doesn't sound repetitive with everything else? So I, I think it served that purpose pretty well. Yeah, this was a time that, like for your LP to count as an LP, you had to get to a certain minute, you know, yeah, like famously, yeah. I think that second strife LP, they mm-hmm. have to put in, they put in all those like terrible noisy interludes just to get it past a certain time. And it kind of ruins the record, you know, but they I needed mean, it to count for an LP. Well, right. I mean, anybody in a situation where you got to add more shit just because you need more shit. I mean, that's kind of what you're going to get. It's just more shit. <laughs> yeah. All right. These are two old ones. Smell the bacon. What's with you and get out. Yeah. I mean, I, I love those songs. Um, didn't write them. Those were actual literal agnostic front songs. So, um, yeah. I, you know, um, crazy, you know, the lyrics are just, so meathead caveman i love it and um you know it's just all attitude and uh, something that i I 
can't write on my own because it's very, I mean, that's, that's Vinny stigma. You know what I mean? That's that man's personality and, and style from all his life experiences into the guitar. Um, and uh, I, I just think it's awesome. Don't you think though, it's like so important to have those songs on this first LP. Cause it kind of, it's what makes bad ball special is like, you went there, like you, you, you laid down this total wild style while in a really professional sounding studio. And in doing that, you have like this brand new thing that's never really been done before, you know? Yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that I do. Um, and, and that was the hope, you know, I was never entirely sure if we hit the nail on the head, the way, you know, you just stated it and made it sound. And then, and it sounds like, as you say that maybe we did, um, that was a goal. You know, um, so yeah, I, you know, we, we wave that flag with pride, man. I mean, those songs, um, those songs are special songs. The world is mine. Hoya, um, Hoya on the music side for sure. Freddie inspired from old gangster movies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, my my biggest contribution to that was the end or the very you know the close to end kind of breakdown. I think that was mine. Um, Hoya might have had a mix in that with me, uh, but most importantly, the seagulls. That's what Hoya would call it. I I I do like a little extra pick, an extra guitar, you know, track on there, and I put I I scrape the pick on the the unwound strings, right? The plain strings, the right. And, and the, I don't I don't know why. I have no fucking clue why I thought that needed to happen there. Uh, you know, I mean, I can I can kind of guess. I, I grew up listening to Eddie Van Halen, right? I mean, every record that you know came out in those first classic David Lee Roth years, he had some crazy, well, how did he make that sound type thing, right? right. Always kind of been part of my thought process as a guitar player. I don't know why I heard that sound needing to happen there, but that's what I did. You finished the album with Friend or Foe, which is total homage, right? Yeah. Yeah. How do you like how that came out? Um, I like it, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's such a great song, um, you know, anthem kind of stompy in that traditional New York hardcore way um, that AF was known for. And, you know, we, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, Madball had ownership of that agnostic front catalog because Madball was the vehicle that AF used to keep those songs going in their later years. Um, and so we just kept that, kept that rolling. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think all the, the same things you've been saying, right. Is that raw kind of primitive style of song with that, excuse me, with that bigger, you know, professional studio production. Speaking of the studio, where do you go for set it off? What engineer do you get and how do you decide on those two things? Um, so, you know, 
94 was when we recorded that, right? And um, we were still, or at least I was anyway, still coming from <laughs> the late 80s, really, which was, you know, Normandy Sound in Rhode Island, where, you know, you had, uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think technically Leeway, Born to Expire was the first record recorded there, but it got shelved for a minute to let Best Wishes from the Chromags come out first. And then, you know, Born to Expire, Killing Time, Bright Side. Um, even though Sick of It All's first record was recorded there, it, it, I don't think sonically it does that band or the studio justice, but just look around, sure as fuck does. Uh, and, you know, Judge bringing it down, right? I mean, epic recordings with epic production. That's what we wanted. And um, Normandy Sound, I think, was technically done at that point in time. But uh, I had kept in touch with the engineer that worked with Agnostic Front on One Voice when we were at Normandy. His name was Jamie Locke. And so I, I, I was able to get in touch with him. I was going to school in Boston. He's in Massachusetts. Um, and he had, you know, connections with studios in that area. Although in hindsight, it's funny because um, it really wasn't super close. The, the, we tracked uh, at a studio called Brown Sound in Gloucester, Mass., which was you know, on the northern kind of coast. Um, so it was a couple hours above Boston, and it was a trek for the guys coming from New York. Um, and then we mixed uh, at a studio you know, on the south part of Massachusetts on the Cape. And that was, <laughs> it was actually in the house of a guy named Michael Johnson, who was an old R&B guy in the Boston scene, uh, cousins with Maurice Starr, who had founded, uh, you know, New Edition, New Kids on the Block. And there was a Normandy connection there because all those New Kids on the Block and New Edition stuff were done at Normandy. That's right. Um, so. Yeah, that's that's how we you know we we figured you know we're gonna get an engineer who's got that Normandy skill set and knowledge and experience and throw it into you know different studio environments and just kind of shake it up a little bit but kind of have that as part of the foundation. How did you feel personally, like uh, preparation wise, going in for set it off compared to how you felt going in for one voice? Uh. You know, I was confident when I did One Voice um, because I, I felt I felt confident, like with my ability as a as a guitar player, as a you know a songwriter, as a, um, I don't know. I just I, I I felt confident, but admitting I you know I wasn't exactly sure what people wanted to hear at that time. And you know, believe me, I, I never I, I don't I don't try to think about what people want to hear and I, I didn't then and I don't today I can only produce what I want to hear I mean that's that's the only thing it's the only thing I can do right if I try to do I like it, it wouldn't even interest me to play what I think other people want to hear I want to hear what I want to hear so that's what I'm gonna, gonna play but uh when we did Madball set it up I felt that much more confident I've been through kind of the process of being in a more professional studio um although still when i listen back and think about some of the decisions i made 
kind of from a production standpoint, I'm like, wow, what was I thinking? So it was still a learning process, but I just, I was that much more energized about what Madball was doing than what, uh, what AF was doing for One Voice. Did you sequence set it off uh, before or after you recorded? After. And then what was the sample on the beginning of Set It Off and who says it? And was it inspired by the film American Me? Yes, it was. Um, so, you know, the very beginning, and I, it's funny, and, and I'm glad to hear people have said this. They assumed it was a recording just taken out on the street in New York. Like we just, you know, had a, a microphone with us when we were out walking and you know that's where you get that kind of street dialogue and sounds going on but it was a compilation of actual pre-recorded sound effects plus uh there was this documentary um i forget what it was but it was it was um it wasn't new york so it was street stuff going on but it was a video recording we had of this documentary that had good street dialogue that you hear and then yeah all of that build up into the we don't take it we just take it we tried to use the original line you know the actual line that came from the movie american me but it was said in kind of a in kind of a, a passing phrase tone of voice and it didn't sound real authoritative it, it and it was when you just kind of try to grab that snippet it just didn't work very well so we made this we said well someone's gotta say it you know like we got to so, uh, yeah, I wound up being Willie, a drummer, and uh, <laughs> that's it, man. I mean, you know, we were just having fun, you know. The street sounds on the record, that idea gets jacked by One Life Crew, like the next year. Did you ever hear that? And how do you feel about someone just like a year later taking like the same idea? Is that like flattering or is that upsetting? Yeah, I you know I I uh, I must have heard it, but I can't really say I know it real well. Um, and you know I don't know if One Life Crew, you know I I, I kind of feel like I know what those dudes are about, and you know I don't know if are they trying to poke fun and kind of do it as a diss, or is it just something they thought was cool and they did it too? Because um, I've done that, right? I've, I've, shit, I've written songs. I was like, that's dope. And then realized I just wrote the song. I wrote a song by somebody else, right? Uh, not even realizing it because it's just kind of in your subconscious and not really, you don't even realize that it, it wasn't a conscious effort to redo somebody else's work, right? From everything I've heard, you know, this is before they went all the way off the silly end, although yeah. they have, uh, the the first song on that record, like the lyrics are pretty abysmal. Um, but supposedly that record they were trying, like they love set it off. We're trying to replicate it. You know, I remember that too. Cause I mean, I know people are well aware of the kind of, there was a, that mid nineties, New York, Cleveland kind of friction. Uh, but I'd always heard that people actually were fans of Madball, uh, musically, uh, regardless of that uh so yeah i that's cool with me man like again i we didn't we didn't invent the wheel right i mean we carried the torch and we you know we kind of repackaged some things that have been done before no question so i i'm cool with it 
What are your general memories of being in the studio recording Set It Off? A lot of fun, man. We really had a lot of fun. Um, you know, I can say those were the days where, uh, you know, Roadrunner wasn't a major label, but they were a, a pretty large label, you know, for being in, you know, I think we called them, did we literally call them a major independent? We might have. I feel like that was the term used. Anyway, um, I mean, you know, we uh, we were well taken care of. I mean, we we had a decent budget where we had actual per diems when we were out recording. Um, you know, we weren't ex- it wasn't extravagant, but it was a it was a and and both studios were actually in people's homes, which was kind of interesting. But it was quality gear and the accommodations were good enough. Um, you know, so we were put up. We were. Uh, like <laughs> when we were in Gloucester the first night, we actually we were escorted to where this where the accommodations were, and they had you know, Gloucester is a is a fishing town, right in Massachusetts. Like if you I don't know if you ever uh, what is the they make fish sticks, frozen fish sticks, and you can see like a sailor holding the big you know like Gordons or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Gloucester, right? So. Um, and it looked like an old fishing town, and we stayed in this old house near the the water, and we swore it was haunted. I uh, to this day, I think it, <laughs> I'm going to say it was haunted. Hoya will definitely <laughs> tell you it's haunted. And it was a crazy storm, and the wind was pushing the windows. And you know, Freddie and Hoya, especially, kind of having that you know Hispanic Catholic upbringing, they they got more of the superstition in them than I do. Uh, and you know, we were laughing and you know, just horsing around and, um, and just, you know, that was Hoya's first real experience recording in a real, you know, studio. Um, and, uh, Jamie was a fun guy to hang out with. And we, I mean, we were good friends, man. It was, it was fun. That rules just to give people like a little idea about Roadrunner. I believe it's fully independent at that time. It doesn't get a piece of it sold until Oh one. But they did have like a lot of success. Like they put out a uh, obituary. They put out like Sepultura. They put out Typo Negative. So like they're pretty huge for indie. Yeah. Yes. Right. I mean they they had the 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 lot they had the corner on the market of the death metal, right? I mean obituary, right. deicide, cannibal corpse, um, you know Sepultura, which I don't know if they technically classify as death metal, but I mean, part of that kind of scene. Um, yeah. The liner notes have set it off, say that the record was recorded in March and April of 94. Do you remember how long you were in the studio? You know, it was done over um, weekends, and I can't remember long weekends, a couple of them, I think, right? Maybe, you know, I took a, I can figure out a way to get a day off of school and, um go uh you know so get an extra day there uh for that weekend type of thing but i I can't exactly remember and i i know it wasn't it didn't feel long enough because we were we were down to the wire when we were um mixing to two track um it was late night and you know i know like jamie the engineer was kind of fried and i was the last one there everyone had already left to get back to new york and you know, I was, I was having, I had class the next morning and I was kind of dreading it. 
Um, so, um, but I can't remember exactly how much time we spent. Not, not too much. How are they getting up there? Are they driving up? Are they taking a train? Yeah. Willie, uh, you know, it would either would have been a, a bus, you know, there was those, um, God, what was it? It wasn't Greyhound. It was Peter Pan in the Northeast, which is kind of funny. Uh, but like a, you know, like a Greyhound bus or there was Amtrak. Uh, and also Willie uh, had a, a old beat up station wagon. Were you able to get the the tones that you wanted in the studio, like for drum, bass and guitar? Drums for sure. Uh, Will, uh, you know, Willie tuned his drums well, hit them hard. And Jamie Locke, you know, he's a professional engineer that knew how to, you know, miking a drum kit. That's that's not a simple thing to do um, properly, anyway, right? Um, so the drums were, you know, always on, on any Mad Ball release. Well, at least those two that Jamie did uh, set it off and demonstrate my style. I think you know are amazing. Honestly, I am not ever satisfied with the guitar tones uh, on the recordings I've done uh, up until very recently um, with this engineer out here in California, uh, Paul Miner at Buzzbomb. Paul's done a lot of a lot of bands, H2O, Terror, um, AF, even you know, like more recent AF stuff, and just a great. Did he do you guys? He did my band in the early two thousands, but don't judge him for that. Okay. That shit was all our, that shit was all our fault. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I mean, so anyway, you know, uh, I, I feel like I've had more success uh, in my in my later years. Part of that too was the equipment. Um, you know, it's it's almost hard not to get a good big guitar sound. You know, uh, overdriven guitar sound today because the amp technology is just it's there but you know in the early 90s you still had to kind of you know it was it wasn't always straightforward you know uh i actually i brought a dual rectifier here's a story for you set it off i did all the guitar tracks using a dual rectifier and i didn't like it and i did them all again using um a uh Shit, what was it? What did what did we wind up using differently? Um, oh, Marshall, JCM eight hundred, the greatest amp ever. Yeah, right. Uh, but it was it's a Marshall JCM eight hundred and a TC Electronics Overdrive, which was kind of known as being the classic Normandy guitar tone that you know supposedly was the you know, gear responsible for best wishes and, and born to expire. Um, but there's a little more to it than that. And I found out after the fact that the pickup on my guitar at that time was faulty. So I wasn't driving the amps as hard as they should have been driven. So I just wasn't quite getting the full saturation. And I mean, you know, if you really listen to this guitar tone on Set It Off, it's not that overdriven comparatively. Do you feel that you accomplished what you set out to lyrically? I never feel that way, man. You know, I, I, it's, I was like kind of thrown into it. I, no one ever like 
I never took a course on writing lyrics. And even though my brother was a, you know, wrote lyrics with AF and stuff, and he's like my mentor or whatever you can say, you know, him, Vinny and those guys, they never sat me down like classroom style and, and, and were like, okay, this is how you write lyrics. And this is a verse. And I sort of had to learn on my own um, by watching. And then Maddie was very, very instrumental to all of us. As, as far as uh, um, song structure, you know, he was very he was very savvy in that area. Besides being a great guitarist and coming up with great riffs, he was the one that like really had the structure thing down. You know, he would be the one that'd be like, "Yeah, that should be a verse, that should be a chorus." You know, and I learned a lot of that kind of stuff from him, um, and from AF as well. Listening to their music, just being around them as they wrote. Stuff. I was with them when they wrote One Voice, and I was with them when they recorded other records, uh, earlier records. So I, 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 I can't, you know, I, I absorbed some stuff, but I was never like sat down and taught how to write lyrics. Um, the first Madball lyrics were written by my brother. That was like, you know, Ball Destruction was like recycled AF. Dropping Many Suckers was a notepad that my brother had where he had jotted down a bunch of crazy lyrics and. That a lot of those lyrics ended up being dropping many suckers, which was the EP before set it off. Um, I ended up using a lot of them because I didn't have any of my own, so I didn't really have a choice. You know, even if I had criticism about it, I would I would maybe edit a word here and there and change a couple of little things around, but like I didn't have my own lyrics, so I, I ran with it. But set it off was where I started to learn how to write. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for the process because that was actually the first record where I actually, uh, became, I guess you could say, uh, a, a writer of, of some sort, you know, a songwriter or a lyric, a lyricist or whatever you want to call it. That was the record, you know, that was where I had to like step up and I did have a lot of ideas and a lot of things I wanted to talk about. So that was where I was forced to express myself on that record. I was, I was not forced to, but that was kind of put on the spot. Like, Hey, you know, what do you got to offer now? You know, besides jumping around and yelling. Um, so, uh, yeah, I learned a lot, you know, am I satisfied? I'm never, like I said, I'm never satisfied. I mean, every record I'll find something where I'm like, Oh, I could have said that better. Or especially the earlier stuff, because, uh, it was very like, I mean, we were trying to be straightforward anyways, straightforward in your face, straight to the point, kind of, that was always Madball anyway, but I could have written things a little better, a little more clever here or there. I could have, you know, there's always little criticisms. I always, you know, criticize my own, uh, my own, uh, contributions. Um, but I feel like I've gotten better at it. Um, over the years, for sure. Um, so I feel as it, as it, as we progress with every record, I feel a little bit better about my lyrical stuff because I feel like I've finally grasped uh, how to do it. But but there is some spectacular stuff on here, right? Like if you dial into the record, like the way your flow is on the second verse of New York City, is pretty out of this uh-huh. world for like. Ah. for flow like straight up and and it's a it's a thing that drives me crazy is when hardcore is not put on the same level as other types of music 
You know, it's like, oh, that's a good flow for hardcore or whatever. You know what I mean? But like, that's a pretty insane, yeah, like a- that's an insane rhythm pattern. And the lyrics like fitting like that, like that's wild. <laughs> well, thanks, man. I appreciate you uh, dissecting it like that. And, and, and I think you're right. It's like a backhanded compliment from people. Sometimes it's like, that's a good lyric for a hardcore band. It's like, uh, you know, you could pretty much say that about any genre, you know, you can find, you know, a lyric or a, even, you know, good or bad that, be like well that's cool for a pop song you know like right. it, it, it is kind of cheesy to uh yeah good music's good music or a good lyrics a good lyric a good riff a good riff I, I get you on that part um yeah i don't know that flow just again i gotta i gotta give credit to my musical background i guess because it wasn't like i was some like super experienced lyricist at that point or songwriter or whatever you know i was just like a kid with a lot of pent up energy, pent up aggression. And I had something to say, you know, and I was pissed off and that part, you know, you can't take away from it. You know, the, 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 the lyrics, the, 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 you know, the, the music and, you know, the vocal side of it is pissed off because we were, we were like, you know, we were trying to like, um, express ourselves, find ourselves. And also, I guess in some weird way, prove ourselves like kind of step outside of the shadow of agnostic front, you know, which is maybe something no, no one, no, no one talks about, you know, often uh, or often enough, but yeah, we were kind of trying to do all those things and not in like a way of like, you know, it was, it's always love. It's always respect, but just kind of be like, Hey, this is what we're doing. But, uh, but yeah, my, as far as my flow goes, I never really copied anyone. I just sort of hear what I hear. And I think it's a lot to do with like growing up listening to hip hop since the eighties, uh, Latin music, uh, rock, everything. I mean, I listen to everything. I, I still, to this day, I, I'm, 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 you know, my musical taste is very, very eclectic, you know, very, uh, very diverse. Um, so yeah, that's the only thing I can, I can say is that maybe subconsciously I, I, I just spit the way I spit because I, I don't know. I didn't know any, anything else, you know, I didn't know any better. What are your overall thoughts on Freddie's vocals and his flow and his studio performance? I mean, I love it. You know, his, his flow and his performance, I think are um, top notch. What's interesting. And I, I remember this happening is, uh, you know, so we did use, you know, this, this is the behind the scenes shit here, right? Uh, we did use a harmonizer on his vocals, but I'm telling you now, it was so subtle, and it was really to try to just smooth it out a little bit. You know, what I don't want people to think, because I'm telling you it's not the case, is that the harmonizer created that deep growl. That was Freddie's voice, which is always kind of interesting to me. As he got older, his voice kind of lost some of that and, and got a little... I don't want to say exactly higher pitched, but it lost a little bit of that deeper growl that he had when he was in his teens, um, which was, you know, I don't, you would think it would be the reverse almost, but anyway. Um, yeah, but, but still that, that harmonizer, every once in a while, I'm like, Ooh, why did we use that? Cause you could hear certain artifacts that would kick in on certain phrases or accents every once in a while that, that give it somewhat of an unusual quality, but you know, Whatever. How involved were you in the mix and what are your thoughts on the mix? 
I was very involved in the mix. I, I, um, you know, I appreciate the fact that, you know, the guys in the band let me kind of sit in the driver's seat. And I, it was mostly, I, I mean, A, just because I felt like I'm hearing things and I, I got a vision that I'm trying to get to. Uh, I wasn't ever, you know, and, and again, because I think the band was always cool with it. I think I was able to do it in a way where I wasn't trying to take over or exclude others from having a say or, a, um, you know, contributing. Um, so, but yeah, I, it's, it's always been an interest of mine. I, I can, I can sit and do mixing, right? I, I'm not, I'm I'm not the engineer, so don't get me wrong. I'm not the one con- running the controls, but I I know what you know. I know the technology enough to know what we're gonna need to you know deal with in terms of all right, you know, we need need more verb on that snare, or you know, get a little more compression on the vocals if there's too much compression on the vocals, like that type of thing. But for me, it was always more about balance and layering. And, um, you know, especially in those days too, another Normandy kind of old school studio trick. You, you, you mix at real low volume uh, to just make sure that where your balance was was you know you were hearing everything without having too much decibels at you that created artificial harmonics that kind of ghosted the mix in a way. Do you remember where you were when you heard the master for the first time? And uh what type of stereo would you have played it on for yourself? Yeah, let's see. Um, I mean, we went to the mastering session. And again, in those days, we mastered that, uh, you know, it was like the Hit Factory in New York, um, which was, you know, that was major label shit, right? Um, uh, and so, you know, that was always a cool process to sit through. Um and then, you know, after it was mastered and not, well, we had, uh, obviously we had the pre-mastered recordings on a cassette because I, I mean, I had it on a DAT. I had it on a, a, a cassette straight from the, you know, the mixing session. And um, at the time I was living in an apartment with a guy, uh, Rick, who was uh, a guitar player for the, Bru- the Bruisers in Boston. And he had just bought himself a new big stereo and i popped that thing and it sounded huge i was like yeah this is good how did it how did it feel to hear the album the first time when it was completed and like did you know that you you had something special um it was pretty i mean for the time the production was like wow this is like sounds like something like that i could you know put next to some random metal record or something, you know, like I, I definitely felt like it was something, you know, uh, all criticisms aside, you know, because the first thing you nitpick, Oh, I should have said that word or I should have written that better. Or should it, you know, as far as for me personally, uh, I didn't like, I didn't love the effects on my vocals all the time. Sometimes it was, it was good. I liked it. Sometimes it was necessary. Sometimes I was like, ah, too much throughout the whole album, you know, besides all the little nitpicky stuff, that you know, uh, you know, one musicians I think will always criticize their, their their own stuff. Besides all that, it did feel like something special. I gotta say, I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that. It felt 
like we had put together something hard, which was the, one of the first, you know, goals was for it to be, you know, hard because we're in a heavy, we're in, we're in a genre, we're in a, in a culture that that's what, that's what it's supposed to be. You know, it's hardcore. So it's gotta, it's gotta be hard. It's gotta be heavy. It's gotta hang. Um, it's got to be fast elements, but there's got to be some other elements too, you know? And, and, and I don't know, it, it, it seemed like it had all the different things that we wanted it to have. It came together in the end better than I thought it would actually. So, uh, yeah, when we first heard that back, I was like, wow. Yeah. I was like, this is, this is different. I definitely thought it was different. Definitely thought it was different than AF, than Comags and other stuff that we had grown up listening to. Um, that we love killing time, all that stuff. Like it was a little bit, little vices of all those bands, you know, little, little dabs here and little, uh, touches here and there, but not any of those bands, not, not, not from the, um, uh, presentation of the, you know, the music to the artwork, to the lyrics, to the, you know, I just, I definitely, felt proud that it stood out and was its own thing for sure you know uh from every from every aspect of it you know every aspect of it, from the musical standpoint to to everything you know even the record cover that hadn't been done before something like that it was like, different so yeah i was happy i was happy that we accomplished that but it was still hardcore I mean, at least to us you know did you know you were sitting on something special at that point you know I felt like I felt like I was, uh, but I'm admitting that there was, you know, everything we're talking about here in the positive way. I stand by, and uh, but there were some, some, you know, uh, some characteristics about the, that recording that I, I'm not happy with. I would never like it. It didn't exactly sound the way I wanted it to sound. You know, all said and done. Um, the attitude and the delivery of the songs, yes. The performance, yes. The the sonic quality of uh, everything, not exactly, but uh, good enough. You know, good enough. Who is in charge of the art for the layout? Um, you know, the label had art people, and I was never. I've never been good at kind of. Um, I don't know. Like I, I can come up with an idea, and but I, I don't feel like I'm a real visual person for one reason or another. I can't remember who came up with. I think I think Howie Abrams, our A&R guy, actually somehow stumbled onto that photo, uh, and we were like, "Wow, that photo is bugged out." <laughs> and it really, it really didn't make any sense. Like, you know, I mean, what that picture sh- showed, and you know, set it off. New York hardcore, like what I. What's the connection here? I don't really get it. Uh, but the picture was just so outrageous. It's like, yeah, just put that on the cover. Let's do that. <laughs> it was a vibe, that's for sure. Right, exactly. Yeah. How about the back cover? Where was that shot? I forget where that is exactly. Um, it was, I want to say near like Canal Street and what has that been? The, the Manhattan Bridge, I think. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, again, that was that was us, man. We just would be out in the city all the time, 
and guaranteed we'd be with buddies of ours and guaranteed at least one of those those guys would have you know a marker or a, a can of spray paint so there was always tagging going on everywhere we went and um you know so yeah we knew we were going to do a photo shoot for the record but i mean the reality is that's just how we were um i can't remember was that bj that did that photo i'm, I'm guessing that was her yeah was that uh Polly the beer drinking dog that was Polly the beer drinking dog absolutely uh do you remember when the album officially came out so you finished recording in april what was the turnaround time yeah i'm not gonna have a good good answer to that one uh it wasn't long I, I I kind of recall that. Um, and I remember like, you know, it, what I remember is I feel like it was hitting harder with people that were outside of the hardcore scene initially. Like, again, I'm remembering that we, I was friends with, uh, you know, I, I had, you know, friends in the hardcore scene in Boston at, at that time. And even those friends were kind of playing in bands that weren't hardcore. They were kind of trying to, just, I think everyone was looking to do some little different uh, at some point or another, right? And so it was kind of more of a a rock scene for some of my friends at, at that time in the Boston music scene and friends with this guy at Guitar Center, good guy, kind of a more metal guy. And I played it for him and he was blown away. Um, and I didn't think he was kissing my ass. I think he was legitimately like, damn, you know, because, you know, it, it was, it had this thing to it. It was like, what the fuck? That sounds crazy. That's hard. That's, that's badass. Oh, yeah. You know? So, um, but hardcore, in the hardcore scene, I don't know. It it it, it didn't, I, I couldn't get a good read on it out of the gate. How about the reaction of like your immediate core group of friends? Like maybe even before the record came out, like when you're playing it for your like closest friends, what's their reaction to it? Well, you know, you know how it is when you have your friends, like, especially back in those, in those days, like we were all tight and we were all supported each other's, you know, bands. Not everybody was in a band or doing music, but, um, the ones that were doing music or doing bands at the time, we always supported each other's music. So, um, that was kind of like, yeah, everyone was kind of, uh, rooting for each other. Um, but I will say, yeah, a lot of the guy, a lot of people were kind of like, whoa, you know, the, you guys brought it with this. Um, and even people not, uh, like I said, you know, the guys that weren't music guys, uh, even guys that weren't like that hardcore wasn't maybe their first, uh, choice for music. They were, I think like they, they felt something, you know, they felt something, they can bop their head to it, something, you know? So it was pretty positive across the board. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anyone that hated on it or, or said something, you know, I, who knows, maybe jokingly somebody might have said something, but honestly, I feel like it was pretty positive in our group of friends. And then it just like that whole vibe just sort of continued on throughout, like, you know, the label and the, and the people that, you know, Howie Abrams and the people that had signed us. And uh, yeah, I don't think anyone was disappointed. Um, no. How about with like the immediate friends of of not just you but Freddie and Hoya, and then also like peers like other hardcore bands at the time? What was like the response to it immediately? Yeah, I, I 
I think it was mixed. I mean, you know, like the fellas, right? Our 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 friends, I mean, they were just always there supporting us. Um, but you know, you, you can always kind of tell, right? Are, are you saying it's okay? Like, oh, it's it's good. No, you know, I mean, they were like, yeah, yo, that sounds dope. Uh, you know, cool. Um, other bands, other people in the scene. I think, I don't know. I, I think people were weren't sure. Like, I think that because uh, you know it was it was kind of this own weird little animal that right? you know what I mean. Um, but it it was you knew something was there. I mean, there was no no debate about that. And we were we were a pretty well oiled live band at that time. So you know, if maybe you didn't get it right away you knew that um, there was something there to get. And after you saw it live, I think it made that much more sense. Well, it's 94, right? So it's the same year that Scratch the Surface comes out. Yes. Did you ever talk to Craig about how you felt about Scratch the Surface and how he felt about Set It Off, like in that year? That's a good question. Um, I will say this, like, this is being full transparent. Um, I was blown away when I heard Scratch the Surface. Um, I think that is an amazing sounding record. Um, and and for me, that was that was what what really solidified in my mind that Sickle is a great fucking band. I mean, you you it is undeniable when I hear that record and when I heard that record. And I wouldn't say I was jealous, but I was like, damn, that's a good strong work right there like it, i felt like it, you know that was a that was a special recording um and there were things about it that i liked more than what i thought i achieved with set it off you know sonically right uh but you know that's not the point of set it off madball madball set it off was this just big ugly nasty thing that just was breaking out of a cage you know um, and then well, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, it's impressive because they did it for the third time, right? That, that's part of what makes Scratch the Surface so amazing is they do it for the third time, right? A great hardcore LP, which a lot of people can't do even the first time, you know? And Madball, you do your first one, and soon enough, you know, you'd hit four, right? you know? And right. It, it's debatable. A lot of people include Built the Last as being a great sick of it all. I, I'd say it's a little bit under that, you know, but Madball, the first four, I mean, Jesus, it's not a conversation for tonight, but I mean, you're, I mean, you're in the same league, right? How many, how many hardcore bands do more than two good LPs? There's like, not that many. There's got to be under 25. Yeah. You know, I never really did the math on that. Uh, and again, I'm, you know, I'm never really fully sure if what I'm putting out there is what, other people want to hear some yeah but you know i don't know I, I, part of me always felt like matt ball was kind of a a niche thing <laughs> i don't know why uh you know um but the people who do like it really seem to like it and that's awesome i mean i to me it it, it, it you know whatever whatever complaints or or issues i might have with the recordings and and again that i do to some degree with all of them um uh that's the engineer in me that's the guy who's a little too close to it probably right um 
but song wise, you know, delivery of the performance of those songs and the attitude that's still put forth that I don't have any, I mean, that, that I'm very proud of with all of it. Can you talk about how the popularity of Madball like kind of takes off after this release? Uh, Yeah, it's crazy. Um, because the 90s was a weird period for hardcore. A lot of people don't realize that there was a portion of the 90s where it was really hard. You know, it was like AF um, kind of went on hiatus. Um, Fans like Sick of It All were kind of like doing all these West Coast kind of tours and like kind of trying to, and I don't blame them. You know, they were just trying to, explore and find maybe other, you know, uh, expand their fan base, whatever it is. You know, it seemed like the heavy hitters, at least uh, that, that we would, that we would say, um, are, were like, uh, either not playing or out kind of doing other things. And New York was in a period where like, uh, I don't know, there was kind of like, it needed new energy, you know, it needed new bands. It needed like, um, uh, it, it need, it needed to like kind of regenerate or something, you know, it was kind of dying out. Like shows were weird. Um, and it wasn't actually, it wasn't the best time to start a hardcore band. You know, it just so happened by default, Madball started in the early nineties just because I was in the city. Hey, we, hey we're going to do this thing. We're going to, all right, let's try it out. And then we just kind of did it for the fun of it. Not because we thought, oh man, let's capitalize on hardcore because it's hot right now. No, not at all. Or let's capitalize on it because we're connected to AF. Not the case because that helped us to a point, but it didn't bring more people to our shows initially in the beginning. Um, That started happening after Set It Off. And, and, And so for whatever that's worth. You know, so in the earlier 90s, it was hardcore was a tough going through another one of those kind of like uh, reconstruction phases, you know, where it was kind of morphing into uh, the third generation or whatever you want to call it, you know. And um, we were part of that, you know, us and Crown of Thorns and a bunch of other bands, you know. So, um, yeah, and H2O and, like, you know, bands like that, like a bunch of us were just kind of like, I guess, sort of, leading that third generation and then um yeah, and then we drop set it off and then um out of that generation of bands i guess you could say we kind of started to get you know a, a bit of a head start because we were signed to roadrunner and they were a european label and they were a strong independent label heavy music label and they were really big in europe so we had already planted a seed there and planted a flag there. So we started going there a lot. And then that's really where we kind of gained a lot of momentum. And then in the States as well, you know, like we, we did a couple tours in the States where you could see like people were paying attention, you know, Europe, you know, is still always going to be, I think, uh, hardcore is always going to be a little bigger than, than, than America, you know, that's always going to be the case, I think. But, uh, but yeah, no, uh, uh, when we dropped that record, the label pushed it and we toured a bunch. And so it was kind of like all the right elements. You talked about Mabel shows in 93, like before the LP. How do they change immediately after the LP? 
they don't change immediately after the LP. That was the other thing, right? Um, it again, it, it it was there wasn't all that much of a scene, but it was starting to come up. And this is this is something you know that was a really special time for New York, right? And I, I've said this before, and I stand by it. Is you know your favorite place to play in New York? You know, I I, I played CBs, uh, you know, probably a dozen times or so, um, but you know, they were technically after the matinee heyday of the 80s, right? Um, and I don't know, you know, it was certainly a great stage and the sound system was great, but at the time I'm doing it, the scene wasn't exactly as strong as it eventually became again in the mid-90s where we were playing at Wetlands. And you had Madball, uh, 25 to Life, Crown of Thorns, um, I mean, Breakdown was still playing and had a good run in those days. Um, God, who were the other bands that were? Um, oh, man, how can I not remember? So, uh, uh, Bull, Bulldoze, right, who were good friends yeah. of ours. Um, yeah. I mean, we were we were start uh, Vision of Disorder. Shit, see, that's what I'm trying to get to, right? There were good bands with a diverse kind of style and approach, but we were all playing together at the same club, same shows, and it became like a... a resurgence you know um so i felt like it took a little time for that scene to build up to that level again uh and by that time we were getting great response and you know shows were you know still on the relatively small side you know four to five hundred people but you know in in a smaller club that's a that's a good time well, the New York Hardcore documentary is recorded in '95. Yeah. Is it is it resurgent by then, or are those shows kind of one offs because people know they're getting filmed? No, that was that was we were in the resurgence era at that point. Yeah. So it comes back in '95. Yeah, that's about when it was like, okay, we, here it is, we got it. Yep. Looking back on Set It Off, where do you think it fits into the history of uh, three things: Madball, New York Hardcore. And then the history of hardcore in general. Um, that's a good question. I mean, obviously for Madball, it's 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 a huge part of our history. I mean, yeah, we have stuff that that, that predates set it off. You know, we have Ball Destruction, which was our you know kind of introduction, and then we have Drop Many Suckers, which which you know I think was an important release too. You know, I don't think it should be slept on. Um, because it sounded different. It was kind of like the precursor to what set it off would be in a way, kind of, sort of, you know, because that was where Matt Henderson came into the mix. But set it off will probably always get the crown for being like one of our most important releases, if not our most important release, you know, even if it's not our personal favorite, whatever, whatever. I think it's going to be always go down as one of the most important ones for Madball. Uh, for hardcore, I would hope, I would imagine, you know, uh, even though it wasn't like, like I said, it was a different time, a different era, a different generation, but I think some records transcend that, you know? So I think it's like we said, it's like a good record's a good record or an important record's an important record. So I don't care when it came out, it's, 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 it's important to the culture. So I would hope that that's a record that's going to be, um, 
at the top of the list there somewhere in uh, hardcore history and especially New York hardcore history. I mean, I think it's got a good, well-deserved slot, you know? Um, what, what categories are we saying? We're saying Madball, New York hardcore, and hardcore in general, right? Yeah, so let's start off with Madball. Yeah. Where does it fit in the history so, of Madball? So for Madball, I mean, it was a milestone for us. It was when we when we were, you know, officially committed to being our own personality as opposed to just an agnostic front side project. Um, and, you know, where, you know, the relationships with, like, myself and Hoya really, uh, you know, became a thing and and uh, something I'm so grateful I've, I've had in my life just working with that guy. I mean, number one, I love him as a friend and as a human being. He's hands down one of the funniest human beings you could ever be in a room with. Um, and so, you know, spending time with him was was a treat. But then also writing music with him. And the guy's got such a rhythmic delivery that, that I, I can only try to achieve. And I was so thankful that I had a partner that could bring an extra flavor to music that I'm a part of uh, in the way that he did. Uh, and then, you know, New York hardcore. I mean, I was thinking about this before getting on this uh, cast with you because uh, I'd just been thinking about all the things I knew we were going to get into. And one of the things I just used to love was when, when in those days when we'd get up to play, we'd get up on stage, just have our things all situated, waiting. Freddie would, would walk up and just look at people. <laughs> it's almost an awkward silence, but he wasn't awkward. I think maybe anybody else was, and it would just be, we're Madball from New York City. And then just, boom. And it's like, yeah, because that's what we're there to tell you. You know what I mean? We'd say it in New York. We'd say it in New Jersey. We'd say it in California. We'd say it in Belgium or Austria, right? I mean, we're Madball from New York City, and this is it. So that was New York hardcore. We waved that flag everywhere we went. And then hardcore, right? I mean. We, but Matt, before we jump into hardcore, but you know the history of New York hardcore. Yeah, you know like the big tentpole records. Yeah, and even like the like the side stuff that comes off it, right? Like you know, Bright Side, Victim in Pain, yeah, Age of Coral, yeah, uh, bringing it down. Yeah, where's it fit here? Oh, that's hard for me, man. Um, I mean. So every record you mentioned there is always, you know, more conscious than subconscious for me in terms of, you know, what am I, what's the, what's the bar here? What's the standard, right? And not only that, but what's the, what's the, um, it, you know, I never felt that we needed to, we, we couldn't play a certain chord or note or style because oh that doesn't sound like hardcore right but at the same time it's like well we're here to play some hardcore right so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna play like a riff that sounds like a country song it's just not not something we're gonna do here today right um mm -hmm. and yeah i mean i wanted to be i wanted i wanted people to think of set it off in the same way they think of those records uh, i'm very very conscious of that but do you think that it does? Like, are you satisfied with that? Like, if I say it does, 
you know, I'm just some dude. But do you think that it, it has the credit of being there in the like top 20, top 25, top 10 New York hardcore albums of all time? Yeah, I'm not going to let my ego say that, right? I, I again, Fair enough. I'll say I respect. That. I'll say that that um, that was the goal, right? That certainly was the goal, and it wasn't. Again, it wasn't ego driven. It's just because I love those records and and that music so much that I want to be a part of that. I want to do that too, right? And I, you know, I don't know. I I feel like I I studied it enough and loved it that much where I felt like I I had a chance to do it you know stepping back all the way hardcore in general yeah i i I feel like we we helped wave that new york hardcore flag right when we would go to other cities and other you know parts of the country it's like we wanted people to know we were from new york and like i took like i said we we told you in case you weren't aware we're from new york city and it only took a matter of, of minutes i feel for people to say, oh, okay, I get that. I, I, I think I understand what you're telling me. Um, and, you know, it, it but it, it was never meant to be, we're, we're from New York City, we're better than you. We're, we're from New York City and we're cooler than you. No, that's not what it was, but it was, um, we wear it with pride. It means something to us. Hopefully you'll dig it too. And if you don't, well, we don't really give a fuck, <laughs> you know? That was that was the attitude, and I think I think um, I think there was enough sincerity that maybe even for bands that or people that didn't really necessarily think they thought they were fans of New York hardcore, it made them at least respect it. I love it, uh, Matt. Any other thoughts or things you think we missed? Uh, I mean, you know, again, it was such a it's it's been a while now. I'm I'm getting it's. The clock has been ticking since uh, for a long time since doing that record. But, um, you know, look, and that's the fact, right? You showing interest in this, right, is is appreciated by me. And and anyone that, that seems to still have an appreciation for it. And I feel fortunate that I, I get presented with that still from time to time. Uh, it's it's a good feeling, man. And then I I. You know, I'm, it was a very sincere thing. We 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 literally meant it, and we're still we're all still out there. The same people we've been since that time to say, yeah, we meant it then, we meant it now, and it's it's good to see that it, it's resonated with people over the years. I mean, part of this podcast is just we want to put hardcore on the same level as other music. Right. Like, I hate when you hear people say, like, oh, that's really good for a hardcore record. It's like <laughs> hardcore is the best music in the world. So, like, it stands up, you know, like, set it off is as good as Led Zeppelin. You know what I mean? Like, why why does it have to be like, oh, it's it's a great hardcore record. Yeah. It's like, well, it's a great hardcore record. You know how hard that is to do? You're writing songs with like such a limited toolbox and still making something creative and special. I mean, that's the glory of punk rock and hardcore, right? Like making something creative out of limited resources and making it timeless. I, you know, I, you, you don't got to convince me. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if it makes sense to you or to others, but to me, I, I, I kind of run the analogy of it being like the blues, right? 
um, because the blues, it's a very kind of limited musical, you know, uh, type of, of genre, right? I mean, you know, for those who might be more familiar with it, you know, the standard blues song is written around what's called a one, four, five chord progression, the 12 bar blues. And, you know, if you've ever heard one 12 bar blues song, you'll hear 10 more that sound very similar. But if you don't play that, you're not playing the blues. And there are millions of people who love the blues, right? I don't think there's quite millions of people that love hardcore, but there's a lot of us out there. And, you know, it's, it's hard to define, right? Because, I mean, you know, there's a lot of different, there's been a lot of different bands out there that have approached hardcore with a dip, you know, it's kind of differing musical characteristics, but somehow you know it's a hardcore song, right? That's what's interesting to me about hardcore, but it does have its confines. And to me, it's almost, uh, it's almost a challenge. So make a good song, right? It's the song that really counts to me. That's what, that's what, you know, you're, you're, that's what you're communicating with is the song. Yeah. And what, be, what comes behind the song, like why the song exists, yeah. like there's a reason, you know? Yeah, for sure. Hello, everybody. This is Scott Vogel from the band Terror. Set It Off is a hardcore masterpiece. Perfect record. New York hardcore to the fucking bone. A set it off story I have is I bought the record as soon as it came out on cassette. I was listening to it all the time, being blown away. It was kind of like a new style of hardcore, taking like one voice, but putting more street on it, more bounce on it. And uh, my girlfriend at the time and I were driving up to Toronto to go to the Toronto Science Museum to have some sort of date type situation. We get over the border on the drive up there. Everything's great. We're listening to the radio on the radio comes an ad tonight. Free show. I can't remember the, the venue might be the Elma combo. If that sounds correct to anyone in Toronto that hears this, maybe that's wrong though. Tonight free show. I believe it was the, like a Roadrunner tour, like mad ball, Machine Head, uh, Stuck Mojo. That's all a guess to. I looked as she was driving. I looked her over at her. She knew we were going to the show and not the science museum because that was way more fucking important. This was the first time I saw Madball. Live show stepped everything up to the next, to the even next level. Because Freddie's one of the best front men ever. They were so tight and fucking hard hitting. And yeah, set it off. One of the greatest records ever. Uh, Madball, one of the best to ever do it. Hey everyone, it's the best dressed man on the pod here. Daniel Sant, a.k.a. Reggie's dad, a.k.a. former singer of Over My Dead Body and uh, Northern Towns. Now I'm here to talk about one of the best albums of all time, 1994's masterpiece, Madball, Set It Off. Now what makes Set It Off so special to me is it is, you know, when you, 
you're in one of those fields and there's a four post like signpost where you could go one of four ways set it off is every single one of those ways to me like it's got hip-hop influence that gives it such a great bounce it has traditional hardcore grit and grime to perfection then it also has um an ability to channel different segments of hardcore that had come before in a seamless way. So it's got this brilliant mixture going on and then it's just got unbelievable swagger and almost like a mafia crime story film built into it as well. So this album gives you a bit of everything, but what, what I find so interesting about it is that if you're going to look for peers for it at that point, when this came out, there is no real peer. There's nothing that has come before it that makes you go, Oh yeah, yeah. It's definitely this. You can pick certain albums that you know that it's got parts of it in like, don't forget the struggle. Don't forget the streets. It's got some of that charisma and bounce and hip hop influence it's got some victim in pain, obviously, coming from the lineage built in there as well. But then it's also got something that it's developing on its own. It There's even touches of youth crew and everything, but there's just something about the ability to channel the harder side of life into a musical style. Now, that might sound funny to some people, but really think about it. Like these are songs about hard situations, about a hard life. And it is reflected completely in a New York sea, like crime story, almost it's just, it channels that perfectly. And then, you know, when, when you think about the diff- the way the album unfolds starts with set it off, it just blows you out the gate. Like it is the most upbeat, aggressive, in your face calling card of an opening track ever. Like it's unbelievable. And then lockdown comes in and it's it, it just it it doesn't let up. Like the album goes from, you know, fifth gear to fifth gear again. Um the fuck you, fuck you, fuck you and your system too. It, whoever thought something so like aggressive would be so catchy at the same time, like absolutely unbelievable. Um, New York City, it just builds to that mosh. And, you know, we've discussed on the podcast in the past that Hatebreed is the album, like, Satisfaction is the album that changes hardcore where everybody's going into a breakdown. But you know what? This is the precursor that is is showing Hatebreed what to do, in my opinion. Like this is showing them, you know, when a mosh is the focal point of a song, the song is better for it a lot of the times, especially in hard, hard, hard as fuck hardcore like this. Then, you know, it goes, and then arguably one of my favorite songs on the record, It's Time, 
is just lyrically amazing. It's just talking about like you don't you don't fucking know us like and we will smash you. <laughs> and <laughs> I love that and then it and then the best part of it all is you know the self-referential lyrics talking about hardcore lives through me and what could what could there's no lie there, you know. This band is made up of hardcore veterans and hardcore lifers and it says it and then from there to go into the uh crucified part is just it's just the best and then you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna break down every single track because you'll probably be bored by me doing that but can we please just have a moment of silence for the upbeat hardest marsh of all time across your face all right, that's the moment of silence right there. Because I, th- I, th- I thought you were going to say a moment of silence for the back cover photo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I haven't got there yet. <laughs> right on. I got to hear your take on it. Yeah. So, um, across your face is there is nothing better in hardcore, in my opinion, when the toms and bass traditional youth crew upbeat part is just played by a band that is playing like the hardest music of all time. It's somehow just, it just gets like absolutely just to the next level of just absolute toughness. It's unbelievable. And then, um, the artwork, the logo, everything about it, it's just fucking hard as fuck. All right, you got to think this. You know, we've seen it, and you're probably numb to it at this point, but there's a baby playing with a gun on it with, uh, you know, Madball's 90s logo, just absolutely perfect with the pseudo Lonsdale look to it. And then the back cover, it's got the graffiti, it's got the American Bulldog in the Pittsburgh Steelers jersey. I really want to know which uh, which player that is <laughs> that he's rocking the jersey of. But I I can't speak enough about coming to this album a little bit late because of you know I grew up going to shows at the Che, and you know in the nineties tougher hardcore was looked down upon for I, I know that's very hard to to imagine but like in a pre-internet world and lots of rumors flying around lots of these tougher hardcore records were bypassed because of you know just the scene that I came from sort of but you know, it was only a couple of years later I got into it, and boy, did I ever get into it! Like this is, you know, a top top ten record of the nineties, top top record of hardcore history ever. So, you know, respect to Madball, eternal respect for this album, set it off, and you know what's great? <laughs> it's not their only good record. Every single LP that they've put out pretty much is great, but hold it down. Like in 2000, you thought, you know, set it off was their 
pinnacle and then hold it down comes out and you're like how does how does one band have two mount everests well this band does 